the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Anything, friend, that takes the affections of our heart away from Jesus Christ is a God. It may be a television show or a movie star. Everyone's idol is a personal problem, unique to them, that they must overcome, that they must surrender the idols in their life. That is Pastor Michael Oxentanko, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Don't forget the worship service is held every Saturday at 11 o'clock. We would love to see you there. And we will have details on that as we continue on with today's program. You can also watch the broadcast live, streaming at reachinghearts.org slash video every Saturday at 11. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Today's message with Pastor Michael Oxentanko is entitled, Jacob's Secret and Joseph's Sorrow. And we'll bring you the first portion of that message today. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentanko. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we got two more sermons, this one and the next in this Joseph series. What a journey it's been for me personally. I never imagined what the Bible would unearth. And I'm grateful for a story that meets our family's needs at a core level where we see the great redeeming God of the Old Testament watching over his children, loving them when they fail, loving those who commit horrible crimes, loving those who are the victims of them, and somehow making sure that the number 70 is all there and saving everyone. So Lord, save us. We're the debtors in this world. We're not the good people. We're the people that need you. And Lord, how easy it would be in our lives to be arrogant, to think we're such religious, perfect folk that somehow we're not the people in need. We are just like Jacob's family. So Father, thank you that the good news is Jesus the good shepherd, the angel that redeemed Jacob and his family all the days of old. And Father, as we contemplate today Jacob's secret and Joseph's sorrow, their common sorrow, may we look to the joy that comes when it all gets turned around for good. In Jesus' name, amen. The hot sun beat upon the cold head of his beloved as he lowered her lifeless body into the damp dungeon of Shadowland. For him, the sun would never rise again and bring happiness to a lover's heart. For him, a lover's moon would never again shine on a lover's delight. She died and he lived. And that would become the tragedy of his life. And this, the paradox of providence, plowed a path of pain too deep for the prophet to claw his way out of. She died and he lived. And this solidified as the cold reality that would haunt him till the day he joined her in death. In Sheol, 
Even the place of her death amplified the paradox of his personal pain. Behind him lay Bethel, the Hebrew name for the house of God. It was at Bethel that God had found him in his flight and plight for life as he fled from his angry brother Esau. God appeared to Jacob in a dream atop a bright and shining ladder that stretched from heaven down to earth. And in this dream, God seemed close and connected in his life. In that terrible night of his conflict, when he was fleeing for his life, God was there, the ladder. God was at the top of the ladder. He was at the bottom. God was there. At Bethel, God promised Jacob that he would never leave him. God promised to guide him, to bless him, to bring him back to the country of his father and his mother. But now God's blessing had turned to gall in his mouth. The journey was in play. He had come home. It was a bitter memory of a dream that now belonged to his youth, but not to his present tragedy. As he buried his beloved Rachel, God's presence felt like something far away and fearful to attain. Before him was Bethlehem in Hebrew, God's house of bread. Behind him was Bethel, the house of God. And he was trapped in his tragedy between the house of God and the house of bread. That's where often we find ourselves, trapped between the house of God and the house of bread, yearning for spiritual food, yearning for light, learning for a way out of the woods. And God's house is behind us, not before us. He was there. And many times he had called on God to meet his needs, and God had supplied the food and the fortune he needed to make it through another day. God was there, all right, but where was God right now? He learned that God is a house of bread and that God sustains the soul by his living word. He knew that very truth at a deeper level because he himself was a prophet, perhaps the only prophet on earth at that time. He knew the truth in his head. He had seen it in the vision, Jacob's ladder. But sometimes truths like these are not easy to remember when you struggle with tragedy and loss at the crisis point in your life as your heart is broken by the truth. See, the truth isn't always comforting. Sometimes the truth breaks a prophet's heart. Where is God when your lover dies between the house of God and the house of bread? Where is God when your pain is the plight and your tears the only solace and the cold and lonely night that has become for you a dark life without your precious bride? Where is God when tragedy strikes and it bites you with a sting sharper than a poisoned barb? Where is God when the wicked wind whips you in the face As your rough hands, your bleeding hands, your shepherd's hands lowers the gentle and tender body of your lover, Rachel, whose name means the ewe lamb, you lower the ewe lamb into the deep, dark dungeon of shadow land. Where is God when death comes to your house as a result of your foolish oath as a prophet in behalf of God? Where is God when your oracle of obedience and piety turns on you And the words you spoke as a witness to faith and devotion, the presence of the godless, becomes for you a twisted kind of revenge. The paradox of Jacob's secret, Jacob's sorrow, of the very pain that would propel him in life until he finally lets it out at the end of his life. Where is God? I mean, these aren't questions just for Jacob. We have all in our own journey found ourselves somewhere between Bethel and Bethlehem. We have found ourselves where Jacob was, where we asked the question, why? And I think I must confess here, when I look at the life of Jesus Christ, and I see it come to an end, I don't see Christ with all the answers on the cross. I see Christ with a big question. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? 
You see, friends, when you can, in your walk with God, overcome the night, the light is on the other side of it. God leads us through things like this that we don't understand so that we can one day see things in a different way. The context for this most unusual story is found in Genesis 31, 17 to 23. Take your Bibles and open there. And before we read this, I would like to review the events that set the stage for these verses. Kind of an overview of the Bible. After Jacob deceived his brother Esau and fooled his father into giving him the birthright, the Bible says he fled for his life to the land of Haran. While at Haran, Jacob met his beautiful wife to be Rachel at a well. As I said, her name means ewe lamb. The Bible says she had those beautiful eyes. The well is a symbol of fertility in the ancient world. And here was his wife at the well. Wives are found in the book of Genesis or people's lives are redirected at a well because it represents life. And while at Haran, when he met his beautiful wife to be Rachel, in time she would become his wife. But soon after, he met her mean and greedy father Laban. Jacob was a liar. Boy, Laban was worse. And so the man who had lied to his brother ends up in a land where he has to deal with a father-in-law who's worse than he was. Jacob worked seven years as a servant to satisfy Laban so he could marry Rachel, who had the beautiful eyes. And the morning after his wedding, he woke up in bed whiter than a sheet to the shocking discovery that he had consummated the marriage with their older sister Leah, who was named after a wild cow and who looked like one with big eyes staring back at him on the morning after. Can you imagine that? I mean, the man who lied was lied too. The man who had tricked his brother was tricked. And thus the saga of the two ladies, Leah and Rachel, at odds to have more children to somehow win their husband's love. I mean, to his credit, Jacob did not spurn Leah. He could have said, well, I'm done. You know, I was lied to. Get out of here. He didn't do that. But he also did not reject his love for Rachel. And so he became a polygamist. God does not bless polygamy. But God did bless them. They lived in a different time, a different world. You know, there's something crazy when we judge other times by our time, isn't it? God has led his people by degree to understand what we know. But God met his people where they were at back then in their time. And we should probably be easy on people in that regard. So the Bible says he worked another seven years for Rachel. In fact, the year for day principle is operative in a certain scripture. It says, and they seem but a few days for him. Seven years, days, year-for-day principle. That's the romantic version of the year-for-day principle in the Bible. Seven years, doll, just a few days. During the 20 years that passed in Haran, God blessed Jacob, and he withdrew his blessing from Laban. Jacob's herds grew great. Laban's herds grew weak. Jacob's wealth multiplied. Laban's goods diminished. It seemed that whatever Jacob had, God blessed it. Whatever he cast his eye on, it just multiplied. And whenever Laban owned something or had it, God cursed it and diminished it. And being the greedy man that he was, Laban set his sights on Jacob's wealth. And thus Jacob now knew it was time to leave and go home because if Laban had it way, he'd have nothing left. He would take it all. The Bible continues with the story in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. And he drove away all his cattle, all his livestock, which he had gained, the cattle in his possession, which he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods, verse 20. 
And Jacob outwitted Laban the Aramean in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. And when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him, pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. The reason for Laban's anger is recorded in verse 19. The Bible says in a rather trite way that Rachel stole her father's gods. It was a custom in ancient Mesopotamia that whoever owned the household gods became the leader of the family, and thus she was hedging. If we have his gods, we become the true leaders of the future, and we're going to manipulate it out. And as a result, whoever had the household gods acquired the first rights to the family property. So it was her way of making sure that when daddy died, she got it all. Thus Rachel took these gods as the ultimate insult to a father who had forced her to share her love with a deceitful sister, she was getting even a little bit. In verse 25, Laban pursues Jacob and finds him in the hill country of Gilead. He finally catches up with the guy. Boy, that son-in-law of mine, I'm going to find him. I'm going to wring his neck. Have you ever heard father-in-laws talk like that? I'm going to wring his neck. And then he gets there. You know, it doesn't turn out that way. But that's the pursuit in play. In verses 29 and 32, we find the climax of Laban's response. I mean, he's boiling, he's puffed up. Here it is. And he says he exerts his fatherly role, so to speak. He's a lousy father, but he exerts it anyway. Verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. I can beat you up, young guy, is what he's saying. And here's what follows. But, here's the transition in the syntax of the sentence, as the Hebrew scholars would say, but. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that whatever he said before is contradicted and overtaken by what it says next. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, take heed that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my God's? Jacob answered Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Well, that was probably true. But what hedged against it was that God said, don't speak good or evil to Jacob. In verse 32, we find the deadly oath. Here's the focus of our subject today. And for Jacob, it is in fact an oracle of obedience. He's a prophet that will all too soon become for him the source of sorrow a secret that he will carry deep inside of his life for the rest of his life that will shape the Joseph narrative in the background that will be the reason he is afraid of losing Joseph, of losing Benjamin, because something will happen in a tent. Words will be spoken that cannot be pulled back because they are a prophet's words. It is the oath that Jacob swore to Laban that we must focus on today. And in the mind of Bible writers, now we have a very weak view of the Bible at the time of the end. Some of us do. We think that the Bible is just a hodgepodge of human ideas. I don't, but I've heard people talk this way. And somehow it just got there. And we got to look beyond the fact it's a human book and it's messed up and we can't really trust it. And let's pull our smart theologians out to tell us what it says. That's nonsense. The ancients believed, and rightly so, that when a prophet speaks, a prophet's words are like an arrow. They go. You cannot pull them back. The force of God Almighty is in the words of the prophets. And when they go, they will have their effect irrevocably. 
We'll continue with today's Reaching Your Heart and Pastor Michael Oxentenko in just a moment. If you'd like to attend the worship service, I will have details on how you can do that here at the close of our broadcast today, so please stay tuned. You can always attend online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Many archived messages are available there for you, and you can attend the live service in a streaming format at that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Let's continue now with Pastor Michael Oxentenko in today's Reaching Your Heart. So the prophet's words were an oath that Jacob swore to Laban. In the mind of the Bible writers, an oath uttered by a prophet, as I say, cannot be retracted, since a prophet's words are like that arrow unleashed that hits the target. An oath given by a prophet carried the divine force to command the future, shape the outcome, because the words of the prophet are God's words, and they are a lie. That's why when God speaks to our church through a prophet, when God raises up a prophet for the last days, we are to give heed to the words of God's messenger if we want to be ready for the last days. Jacob made an oath in a very confident way to his father-in-law Laban. Verse 32. Anyone whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Here are the key words. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In other words, they shall die. That's an amazing thing to say. We'll take them out. Whoever stole your gods, they're dead. In verse 33, Laban enters Rachel's tent. In verses 34 and 35, he tears the room apart, hunting for his higher powers. He looks in every spot he can find but one. He can't find the idol gods that are missing. They're not there, he thinks. In these verses, the Bible uses a great deal of sarcasm. The Bible does it every now and then. Describe the bankrupt and worthless value of materialism, of idols, of things that point to the earth but not to the living God. Look at verse 34. I mean, this is really high-pitched stuff in the Bible. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat upon them. Laban felt all about the tent. So he's not just looking, he's feeling, he's looking under. I mean, he kind of knows Rachel doesn't like him after everything he did to her. And he's kind of thinking, well, it must be here. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Now, he doesn't touch the spot where she's sitting because she says that. Soon after, Laban kisses his daughters and his grandchildren, and then he leaves. In Genesis 35, Jacob's caravan arrives at Bethel. And something marvelous happens at Bethel that needs to happen here And in our homes and our lives, it becomes an archetype of how God will reboot your family, will revitalize your family and your life and mine at the time of the end. So let's dwell on what happened at Bethel. It's a description of religious revival, and we've been talking about that. What we need at the time of the end is a revival, a real revival, not a fake revival, but a revival of primitive godliness that brings us back to Christ, that brings us into full obedience to his word that allows our lives to be reformed because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. So let's focus in on this. Here is a description of the kind of revival that we need just before Jesus returns. After the rape of Dina and the murder of Shechem, his father Hamor, 
and every male in the city, which define the whole dysfunctional family in the storyline that follows in Joseph's narrative. What did Jacob do? Jacob and his family, after that horrible moral failure, after that crisis, Dina's daughter is implied in the genealogy there, a child that completes the line of Leah. And so there was a mess going on in this family system. Jacob and his family, based on Jacob's call as the leader of the family, buried their gods beneath the oak tree near Shechem, and they left them far behind. God said, go out from there. Go to Bethel. Get out of that place where everything fell apart. You may have bought the field with a hundred pieces of silver, but you don't need that field anymore. It's time to relocate your family, your life, to God's ground. Bethel means the house of God. You know, there are times in our lives where we think we can just pull it off by not going to church. We can only live with online church so long, friends. Online church won't cut it for the rest of your life. As we near the time of the end, the Bible says that we should not forsake the assembling of the brethren. If you've got super health risk, we understand. God understands. But dear heart, we're going to need to be together at the time of the end. We need the church because we find God's grace here. We can socially distance in this huge building. And we can take those measures that we need to do. And so the Bible says that they came to Bethel, the house of God. And God is calling his people home at the time of the end. At the very spot where God appeared to Jacob, at the top of that ladder that stretched from heaven to earth, Jacob and his family surrendered their lives at the altar. And that's where we got to do. We must come to God's altar, get on our knees, and surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And they knelt and experienced a heartfelt revival after the tragedies that should have wrecked their family and torn them apart. God put them back together at Bethel where Jacob's ladder had been seen. And there the mighty God came down to change his people and to bless them. Genesis 35 verse 1, And God said to Jacob, Rise, go to Bethel, dwell there. Bethel means house of God. It's not a stop-off point. It's a place you need to live at. The church becomes our life, our focal point. Dwell there and make there an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Build an altar where your vision appeared to you and you saw Jacob's ladder. In verses 2 and 3, the Bible gives three characteristics of a true revival that are just as true in our time as they were in Jacob's time. So write them down. Get your pen out and take notes. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, what does it say in the Bible? Are you looking? Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Rachel brought her gods. She had to to be faithful at command. She brought them out of her tent to get rid of her father's gods. Verse 3. Then let us arise, not just me, not just the leader of the home. I want my whole family to do this. Let us arise and go up to Bethel. We as a family are going to the place where God found me. He takes his family to the spot where God spoke to him so God can speak to them. He says that I may make there an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. What a statement of faith. Jacob's life had been wrecked by the actions of Simeon and Levi when they killed the whole city of Shechem. What happened to Dina 
had left a permanent scar on him and Leah. The child implied in the numbering that has later been identified by the Gematria as Asenath was a rejected, cast out child. His life was altered. Number one, first, Jacob tells his family to put away the foreign gods that are among them. Friend, our foreign gods are a little different from theirs, akin in character. But the challenge is the same every day. Your God may be your sports car, an overfilled bank account that you don't use for God's cause, a diamond ring you like to show everybody because you've got something pretty that shines on your hand, a computer that you spend too much time at, a mink coat that makes you feel warm but also prominent in your social interactions, an academic degree. There are valid academic degrees, and praise God people get them. I have one. But there are also degrees in nonsense. And sometimes, you know, people get those. But when a person gets a degree to impress somebody else, it doesn't matter. Because we are all people who can learn from God on level ground. Or yourself. And some people, their gods are themselves. And we call that narcissism, class B personality disorder. Now, God loves people with all these kind of problems. We've been there. You could probably say, I was there at this point. I was there. Maybe I'm there now and so on. Anything, friend, that takes the affections of our heart away from Jesus Christ is a God. It may be a television show or a movie star or even a friend who drags you away from God in church instead of helping you grow in the cause of Christ. Everyone's idol is a personal problem unique to them that they must overcome, that they must surrender the idols in their life. That will conclude the first portion of Pastor Mike's message entitled, Jacob's Secret and Joseph's Sorrow. We hope you join us again next time when we complete this message. We would really love for you to be a part of our worship service. It's held every Saturday at 11 o'clock. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland. 20707. Or if you're more comfortable, you're certainly welcome to watch online at reachinghearts.org slash video. Reachinghearts.org slash video. The live broadcast will be streaming and available for you on that website. Reachinghearts.org slash video. Thanks for listening. And we do pray that God is reaching your heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com